0: Scripture shapes the lives of millions of people around the world, yet scriptures, both the Bible and the Quran, only gain meaning when they are interpreted by the human mind. Mind Minding Scripture, a podcast from the Department of Theology at the University of Notre Dame, explores the meeting of reason with the scriptures of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. I am Gabriel Saeed Reynolds, Professor of Islamic Studies and Theology in the World Religions World Church Program at Notre Dame. Joining me are Professor Francesca Murphy. Hello, Professor Svinovic. Hello. And Professor Muniam Suri. Hi. Welcome all. In the biblical book of 1 Samuel, chapter 13, the prophet Samuel speaks to Saul, the first king of Israel, and alludes to the man who will replace him. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The man after God's own heart is David, but the figure of David in the Bible, as we will discover in this episode of Mining Scripture, is complicated. He is also a sinner and a penitent. The Quran also emphasizes the penitence of David, and it speaks of him as a representative, or to use the Arabic word, khalifa, of God. So who is David in the Bible and in the Quran? How does this figure allow us to understand biblical and Quranic concepts of kingship, including the idea of a king messiah? These are the questions at hand today for minding scripture. And as that quotation that I began with sort of um, helps us see, the story of David is only fully comprehensible in light of the story that comes before of Saul. Uh, David is not the first king. Um Saul is the first king. And I thought we would start just there, getting the backdrop, the, the background story to how David comes on the scene in First Samuel. Francesca, can can you, as yes. an author of a commentary on First Samuel? Uh,
1: <laughs> it's the Brazos Baker theological commentary on the Bible, one Samuel. I did one Samuel and Bishop Barron uh, Baron did two Samuel. So my knowledge ends at <laughs> the end of the book of One Samuel. Right? <laughs> And, um, okay, so at the beginning of the book of Samuel, okay, let's start. Uh, Before the book of Samuel, you have Joshua and Judges. And Israel, um, it's got some kinds of minor local uh, tribal chieftainship is going on, but in periods of disruption, like when they're attacked from the outside by the Philistines or others, Um, god sends a judge god sends a charismatic prophetic figure to lead them against their attackers and that's how that's all the leadership that um, israel has a little bit of local chief going on and then these charismatic figures who, who, who 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 become generals and lead israel against attackers and that's, that seems to be, this is seen as rule by God because there's nothing dynastic. There's just these charismatic figures who are chosen by God, raised up in the spirit in the Ru'ah in emergencies. Okay. Now, at the beginning, early on in the book of, of, of Samuel, well, first of all, Samuel is chosen um, and as, as a kind of prophet figure. And then um, just as a little boy, and then the Ark of the Covenant is taken. The Philistines attack again, and the Israelites march into battle carrying the Ark of the Covenant, and it's stolen by the Philistines who win the battle. And then the Philistines all get bum and so they send the Ark back because the Ark is, 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 is attacking them from within their community. And so the Israelites are kind of shaken because it seems like the experience of, um, of, of being defeated so badly by the Philistines that they lost the Ark makes them think like, we don't want uh, rule by judges. We don't want this sporadic uh, generals who are just sent in in emergencies. Um, but still, Samuel remains as a leader, but it looks like, 20 years on, it looks like his successors are just going to be dynastic. They're just going to be Samuel's sons who are no good news. And so the people come back and they say, look, this isn't working. Um, We want a king. We don't want just to have these sporadic um, people who are raised up and we don't definitely don't want your sons. So we'd like you to choose a king for us. And God says, this is not going to work out well for you. You know, um, your king will enslave your children and he'll make your sons work for him and he'll have an army. Your sons will have to be in his army and your daughters will have to be his bakers and house decorators and whatever. And Samuel repeats this to the people. It's not going to work out for you. And the people say, we want a king. "No, No more of this charismatic leadership stuff. We want a king. And so God says, okay, I'll give you a king. And he sends... Um, um, what happens is that Saul turns up at Samuel's house. He's looking for the lost donkeys and Samuel anoints him as king. And then Saul makes a series of blunders um, and God orders Samuel to deprive him of the kingship. And
0: Can, just this this uh, uh, back and forth about The king Is a king a good thing or or, or a bad thing? Is there there tension within 1 Samuel, or or is there more than one voice with different Um, opinions, or is it just ambiguous?
1: I'm sure other people probably on this podcast will disagree with me about this. Uh, But um, it's very common to say that uh, within 1 Samuel there must be two texts. Like a pro monarchy text and an mm-hmm. anti monarchy text, and as I studied it when I wrote my commentary, I just didn't see why the same author couldn't show ambivalence about the um, about the notion of monarchy all the way through. So yes. Um, where This piece where um, God tells Samuel this isn't going to work out and your sons will be a slave and your daughters will have to work as, as bakers, that's obviously supposedly the anti-monarchy threat. And then whenever the king does anything good, that's supposedly the pro-monarchy threat. But anybody who watches TV today, if you watch, um, as at the time I was writing the one Samuel commentary, the thing everybody was watching was The Wire. And in The Wire, you had scenes where the gangsters were being shown in their lives, and then scenes where the police following the gangsters were being shown in their lives. And that's threaded all the way through, so that it's really grey about who is the actual hero of this series. And I think most of the good TV of today is kind of, it's got two or three threads, two or three stories all interwoven, but there's one mastermind behind it, like Simon, named Simon behind the wire, as an old-fashioned example.
2: Right. Well, I think also, I mean, um, uh, the, uh, the the questions of source criticism, as it were, or the unity of, of First Samuel, uh, as you know, they're, they're, those are analytically distinct from the from the question of the uh, of the range of views. And one can certainly kind of envision a more unified account of the authorship of First Samuel uh, without discounting. Right, the possibility of debate within uh, ancient Israelite circles about um, about kingship, and yeah, I think it's fair to say, right, that, that, that there are uh, kind of more more or less pro-monarchic views. Of course, um, uh, e- even if we even if we uh, allow for um, uh, a um, a more uh, an authorship of First Samuel that doesn't distinguish uh, radically between uh, pro-monarchic and anti-monarchic sources, but but there is something I suppose to kind of intrinsically. Um, kind of a, a, um, um ambiguous um about um about the institution of of kingship uh that you get uh in uh right in 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 first samuel um but right, you get i mean you get um I mean, we will eventually get to david and the formation of a covenant between god and david um but then throughout uh i mean and, and not just in the depiction of saul but even in the depiction of david and then throughout there are these kind of um, fundamental theological challenges associated with kingship. There's the displacement of God, um, where, right, the, as Francesca described in 1 Samuel 8, this passage where, where uh, Samuel describes uh, what, what the king will do and why the appointing of a king is not good. Uh, so part of the logic there is that the king will take the place of God and the the best, right, the firstborn of the tithes that ought to go to God, the king is going to collect. Uh, and this uh and this is something that one finds right in the in it's part of a a kind of a larger um a larger positioning of the bible the way the bible positions itself these are the ancient near east in the ancient near east it's all about the king and the king is uh, a really a divine-like figure uh and so uh this uh Part of the Bible's kind of distinguishing itself from the ancient Near East is its revision of the institution of monarchy and its depiction of the threat of monarchy gone bad. There's one in which the monarch uh, displaces God uh, and takes what ought to be God. Uh, there and are God all
1: those- actually says, You have chosen the king instead of me.
2: Right. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. part okay. of
1: his speech mm-hmm. to 1 Samuel, mm-hmm. which 1 Samuel repeats to the people.
2: Right, right, so this is a very interesting kind of yeah fundamentally sort of uh i mean one could one could read it as a as a democratizing impulse but uh um but at least in in the terms that the bible uses it's really is is a matter of displacement of god and then there's and then there's a range of other issues uh are, are kind of t- t- um indirectly bound up with that uh, but analytically distinct where the appointing of a king um means a greater connection between Israel and other nations because the other nations are governed by kings. And so if Israel has a king, that king will inevitably marry into the families of other kings, along with those foreign uh, princes or princesses come also foreign cults, uh, the worship of other gods. Uh, and so, uh, and that's also part of the same discussion in First Samuel 8 of um, Israel wanting to be like other nations, right? yes. so there's that distinction between Israel and other nations that is then going to be effaced by the institution of a monarchy. So yeah, so, so you have all of those considerations against monarchy, and then on the other hand, um, you were gonna, you're we're going to have with David um, a um, a covenant between God and David, and then David is going to be this figure who is the is the foundation for the whole future horizon of Israel. So yeah.
1: There's one other point in response to this question, Gabriel's question, about whether kingship is a good thing. And that is that um, both Saul and David are chosen by God to be kings, uh, both by Samuel, and uh, the spirit of the Lord is upon them. And in that sense... They're both transitional figures because they're not hereditary monarchs. I mean, it's of the essence of kingship that it's dynastic and hereditary. But as the first ones, they're actually like halfway between a judge and a king because what both Saul and David have is charismatic kingship. Mm -hmm. And no one after them will have it. Uh, Solomon, David's son, doesn't have that. He's hereditary. But actually, David is a charismatic king. And um, so yes, he's a kind of unique monarch. And it seems to me that we have to be clear that insofar as the Bible endorses monarchy in David, it's endorsing something very odd, which is this charismatic king, which is never going to be repeated.
0: So, turning to hmm. the selection or anointing of David, that's a very memorable scene yes. in, for, for Samuel. Um, I think uh, Samuel, as Jesse, David's father, he's gone through the older yes. brothers. Yes. Is, there, is this it? Is this all, all you have? Yes. And um, Jesse says, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. So we have this image of David that you see in children's Bibles of this, you know, little kid with the sheep with a staff and um, left behind. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, is, how how important is this actually in the Bible and not only in the children's the illustrations of children's Bibles? This presentation of David as as the youngest. Uh, I think Saul is depicted as tall and David yes. as, as short. And, yes. Um, yeah, starts- But it, it
1: disrupts the dynastic principle. He's the youngest, he's the guy who's collecting the sheep, um, so he isn't in any way fitting into the natural order.
2: Uh, well, though, yeah, though I mean, he is, I mean, as the a, as a shepherd, I mean, shepherd is one of the images of a, for, for a yes. king in relation to his people. So, I mean, there's the shepherding aspect, I suppose, but yes, yes. but right, but I think there's very, very self consciously, I mean, I don't think David is depicted as short specifically, but he certainly, Saul is depicted quite explicitly as tall, head and shoulders, literally, uh, above, uh, above all Israel. And so, yeah, there, there, there is this dynamic of the election of the younger that we find, right, uh, kind of continued here.
0: With the shortness, maybe this is—I'm uh, falling into uh, truisms or a stereotypical presentation of the, of the story. But doesn't he, he? Can he get the? Don't they offer him armor when he goes to fight Goliath, and it doesn't right. work out for him? Or it's, it's well,
1: no, right. he, does, he doesn't so fit him. It's,
2: it's they offer of him Saul's armor, armor yeah. and yeah. it doesn't fit. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which means that he's too small. small, right? He's so, smaller than Saul. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, okay. he doesn't.
1: I think he says, "Look, it doesn't fit." but he doesn't want to go into this battle clanking along with armor. He wants to be able to move fast. And so David tells um, kind of smart lies all the time. And I think the armor doesn't fit is one of his smart lies. (laughs) I I would have said, um, I think that that because um, he knows that the only way he can defeat Goliath is in a non-standard way. And so if he goes, Goliath has got his armor and all his stuff, all his weapons, and he's going to have to defeat him by being outside the box, which is how the judges normally defeated, by a trick. You know, the judges, uh, the the, the, the original charismatic leaders, they're outnumbered, and they defeat the Philistines with clever tricks. And that's exactly what David is going to do. He's not going to emulate Goliath and go out there with armor and five kinds of weaponry. Although mm-hmm. he does have five stones.
2: Right. Yeah, um, I mean, there's an interesting, right, there's an interesting, I think, in, in general, in scholarship on the uh, David's story um, are sort of a different, um, the debates around, you know, how to read this. How, do, do we, uh, um, I mean, so this reading that Francesco was mentioning of kind of the, the David as, uh, he wasn't really the, Underdog because he was just fighting him in a different way and and uh, uh, right actually I mean if you have stones and you can attack from a distance then uh, you have a distinct advantage uh, and, and so I mean and that kind of it can, can be carried forward and carried forward in terms of a uh, a reading that emphasizes David's uh, political sophistication cunning um, whereas right David keeps on adverting to piety and making reference to uh, to God and uh, right and when he refuses in the continuation to uh, to attack Saul, uh, and he explicitly grounds that in theological considerations. Even when Saul, right, so Saul ends up pursuing David because he re- he appreciates David as a competitor. So he he pursues David as a as a potential uh, usurper of the throne. And David has the opportunity to strike him, um, and David refuses, uh, and he says, "Right, how can I touch the anointed of the Lord?" Uh, so again, there are two readings over there. Is that David's piety, or is that david being a kind of political cunning uh right where he wants to kind of support the institution of kingship because he himself is uh kind of presenting himself as uh as king or a king in waiting uh so yeah there are two kind of different readings throughout of uh of david
0: well that's sort of deflating uh (laughs) right right (laughs) because the, the beautiful speech and we'll turn to the quran in a second but i mean the provocative exhortation or not really exhortation, but um, sort of uh, incitement of David against Goliath, um, you know, I'll defeat you through the, the Lord uh, and all of this pious language, which is, you know, exciting and stuff. But if it were just a way of, I don't know, instigating. No, I, I, don't, I just
1: don't and, agree, because I think that the cunning way um, is the way in which you most have to rely on God.
2: I agree. Yes, yes. I think. And right, so right, the, I, mean, yes. I don't
1: see it as a zero-sum game. I mean, most of David's modern critics say, "Ah, he's just a liar. You know, he's just deceptive." And um, and and there's no piety here. It's all a sham. Whereas I would say, if you actually choose to rely on cunning because it's the smartest way forward, it's also the way that makes you most vulnerable and most reliant on God. Hmm. And so I I don't see them as necessarily like a zero sum.
2: Yeah, I agree. It's I don't think it's either here yeah.
1: or he's relying on God. Yeah. Right. The smart think- thing to do in this situation is to rely on God. That's the only way to win. Is mm-hmm. to go out with your five stones.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- um, I think it would be a mistake yeah, to, to kind of yeah imagine these as binaries, right? I think appreciating yes. that other reading, uh, but in a non-cynical way. Uh, yes. right. what, what, no, I don't
1: read it cynically. Yeah. I read him as a comic hero, and a comic hero always is defenseless.
2: So this
0: is a really good way to begin. And I, I think Munim forms a contrast to at least a typical understanding of David in the Quran. I mean, David in the Quran... These sort of debates don't don't go on. Uh, he's uh, he's a prophet, and like mm-hmm. other prophets, um, infallible, impeccable. Well, I don't know. I'll let you comment on that if if how you see David in the Quran, just generally in light of in light of what uh, Francesca and Zvi have been saying.
3: Yeah, in the Quran, David is also associated with kinship, right? That that God grant him uh, kinship um, and. Um, and In addition of you know his being a king, the Quran also described David as a prophet. So um, the idea that you know that David is both king and 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 prophet is quite uh, quite um, you know attractive to later Muslim uh, exegetes, because according to you know later Muslim exegete, this is unique for David. Before him, you know uh, 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 you know prophethood. Uh, was vested on 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 one tribe and um and kinship on another but it was in david that both kinship and prophethood are united in one single individual so um so so david you know even though he is not one of the law giving prophet in the Quran but he's certainly not a marginal figure he received revelation, he he received uh, you know, um reveal a book of, of some. But the idea that that he combined both both kinship and and prophecy is is quite emphasized in the later Muslim traditions. Um
0: and, and Goliath is mentioned briefly in sort of the second chapter or sort of the Quran, right? So there is right. an allusion to that, but um it's just very just a brief, a brief mention that's Expanded on, I guess, in later exegesis or commentary, but not not given in great length in the Quran itself.
3: Yeah, the Quran mentioned that uh, you know David uh, killed Goliath, and because of that, that he was granted kinship, right, and as well as as wisdom. So, in the later, you know, Muslim tradition, the word king, the word حكمة. Uh, 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 a wisdom is often understood as a gift of prophecy. So this is the reason why, you know, in addition, you know, to his being uh, a king, that he is also a prophet. Uh, one what of is hikma? Hikma is a gift of, of prophet, prophecy. Yeah. So the yeah. word, the word hikma, which is wisdom in the Quran, mm-hmm. is often understood by later Muslim exegete as referring to a gift of prophecy.
1: Yes, I mean, I I agree. Like, I think he's a charismatic king, and in that sense, unique. So we're not too far
3: off.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Although maybe one one last topic here before we go to a break the um, uh, the notion of uh, of David as an ideal king mm-hmm. um, who becomes in in both Jewish and Christian thought in at least connected to the notion of Messiah, but we're going to speak about this more in the second half. But um, th- that doesn't really follow from in Islamic interpretation of the Quran mm-hmm. or in the Quran itself, right? The notion that, um, he, the, or the connection between between Jesus, who is called Christ in the Quran, is called Messiah, and mm-hmm. David, or the idea that there'll be some future Davidic figure. Um, David is sort of, as you mentioned, represents a king, prophet, figure, but there's not a legacy that there'll be another one like him, or a son of David, or something like that.
3: Right. So instead, the Quran referred to, to David as, as Khalifa, as, as as we know from the text of the Quran itself. Yeah, could you when, yeah, explain that? Khalifa again? Khalifa, yeah, Khalifa, Khalifa um, uh, can, can be rendered as a or representative of God. So the Quran means, you know, this title of Khalifa or Caliph, you know, sometimes understood as Caliph. Yes. is given to only two persons in the Quran, yes. namely Adam and David. So yes. it, is, it is widely understood uh, among among scholars that all human beings in the Quran are called uh, Khalifa or, or or veteran. But the Quran explicitly assigned the title only to David and Adam. And when describing, um, you know, this title to David, the Quran seem to, you know, refer to the title as being as having political connotations, because it says that we created you, referring to David, as Khalifa on the earth, and so judge among the people in truth. So if we can, you know, make this connection between. Uh, you know, his being khalifa on the one hand and king on the other, then the word khalifa here is understood as as, as having political connotation, I think.
0: Well, maybe this is a good spot for us to, to take a break. Um, there's a lot more to speak about in regard to David, including uh, his situation with Bathsheba and um, how that may be connected to a passage in the Quran as well, along with the Psalms. But now is the moment for our listeners to review and rate uh, Minding Scripture. And we'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Minding Scripture. We're speaking about David today and... Uh, we've covered all sorts of things about kingship and um, the backdrop to the story of David in the books of Samuel with the stories of Saul and and Samuel. Uh, But we've also mentioned that David is a complicated figure. We've figured that much out at least. And one of the most complicated episodes is that in uh, 2 Samuel, um, which deals with David and Bathsheba and Uriah, um, so I don't know who wants to maybe introduce us briefly to this episode, beginning with summarizing um what what goes down and um how uh you know the figure of david um is uh complicated by this this
1: uh, case David sees Bathsheba sunbathing and uh she's married to Uriah the Hittite, and mm-hmm. this he sends Uriah the Hittite to be in the front line of the battle in order to get him killed. And this is actually something Saul had done to him um, when Saul was envious of him and wanted to get him out of the way. Saul had done that to David. So the fact that he does it to Uriah the Hittite is really very vile. And Uriah the Hittite is killed and David takes uh Bashibert himself, and then uh, the son gets sick, and the prophet comes to David and tells him this parable about a ewe lamb.
0: Is now Nathan not no longer? Yes, Sam, that's
1: correct. Nathan. It is the prophet Nathan comes to him and tells him the parable, and says, "This is, and you are the person who did this," and um, condemns him. And, um, the first, the, the the David repents, um, he loses his child as a punishment. Um, so the first child that with, with Bathsheba dies as God's punishment for the way that he took her. And, um, how does that reflect on his character? David has a complex moral character, and uh, this is a clear expression of it, Um, a clear expression of the notion that this is what kings are going to be like, and this is what kingship is going to be like. It's going to be very dirty business. And that's right there in the middle of the Hebrew Bible. And it's telling us um, not that um, we should reject politics altogether because David is in many ways a good, pious man and the best king could possibly have, but he's also uh, an evil, manipulative man. And he is both. And this story expresses the fact that he is both.
2: yeah and i'd say also that the story is particularly interested in that um in that, in that penitential moment i mean it's it is very significant that he uh, kind of immediately says i have sinned uh you get also later on um right in the in the uh, in the book of kings a similar story uh with a a, a very different sort of king uh ahab uh who a uh, king of israel of the northern kingdom of israel uh who has a similar a similar transgression this in this case not against um uh, uh not involving adultery but uh again murder uh not murder and adultery but murder and theft where he yeah. uh essentially takes to himself the vineyard of naboth and uh and there, likewise you have the criticism by the prophet in this case elijah uh and also that immediate repentance and so uh so, yeah, so so there's this I think distinctive interest in the Bible. Uh, yeah, in in figuring David as a complex figure, uh, and then also in in highlighting uh the idea of a um, responsiveness to prophets right the, yes the, he is I
1: mean, subject to sort of, the
2: prophets judgment. Yeah, right I mean, it, yeah money mentioned right the unity of, of of kingship and prophecy uh in the Quranic uh, account and and in the reception of it uh whereas in the in the biblical context these are very distinct roles and it's precisely the king's capacity to subject himself to prophetic critique and to accept prophetic rebuke uh that is a mark of uh uh, of a good king,
1: I wonder if it's like in Islam, as I understand it, you can correct me when I've said something idiotic, but in <laughs> Islam there's a sort of ideal of a sort of unity of church and state, whereas in Judaism and Christianity, there's tension between church and state, and the ideal is not necessarily the unification of the two and uh, so maybe it's kind of expressed in this the that, that for David is always David and Samuel or David and Nathan the prophet, whereas in the Quran, David is a prophet and king.
3: Yeah, the Quran describes David as is, a is, is unique individual because of the fact that he combined both prophecy and kinship in, his, in himself. And when later Muslim exegetes describe David, they often use the term uh, that he is a ruler as the shadow of God on the earth, so to describe how he combined both, uh, you know, prophetic tradition as well as as kinship in himself. So um, perhaps this is also related to you know one of perhaps the only example of biblical quotation in the Quran, uh, which is Psalm, um I think thirty seven, I guess, in which the Quran described that the righteous. Will inherit the earth. Mm. So the idea that you know the righteous, uh, a, a good king, will govern uh, in 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 uh, according to divine law is quite emphasized. Uh, in in the, so the, the, I, you know, my, my point here is is to uh, you know to to say something, you know about the connection between inheriting the earth and you know and and the, the you know the the rule of of caliph. Right as, as as I mentioned earlier, that the Quran described or give the title of caliph to David, and one of the the you know the rule that that David you know uh, encouraged to do is to give judgment among people uh, yeah, according to the, the truth. So perhaps there is a connection between why the Quran you know uh, uh, make reference to perhaps the only Quran you know biblical. Um, Quotation, direct quotation is a psalm, which is, according to the Islamic tradition, it is the book given to David himself.
0: This is, just to get the passage out there, this is um, Quran chapter or surah 21, verse 105. In the yeah. translation of Abdul Halim, we wrote in the psalms, as we did in earlier scripture, min Bad al-dhikr is the Arabic, <laughs> my righteous servants will inherit the earth. Yeah, And so we wrote in the psalms, as we did in earlier scripture, my righteous servants will inherit the earth. Uh, And another passage, just so we don't lose the thread of the question of Bathsheba. Mm -hmm. Bathsheba is not mentioned in the Quran. The uh, affair um, of David and Bathsheba is not mentioned, and the killing of Uriah is not mentioned explicitly.
3: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, But we do have this passage in um, uh, Surah or Chapter 38, Surah Sa'd, which speaks of two disputants. And it seems that the parable that um, sweet and Francesca alluded to right. with the uh, prophet Nathan is referred to in the Quran. So yeah, could you take us through that
3: a bit? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You're right that the Quran omit the Bathsheba affairs. It only tells us that David was penitent, although we do not know the precise nature of the sin, right? So perhaps this is a good example of how elusive the Quranic text is. So you know david repentant is a place within the context of a dispute between two brothers one rich and the other poor over the ownership of a single sheep and this story appeared to be an allusion to the parable that uh, you, know, uh, you know francisca mentioned uh, of you know the prophet Natan, who relate this to king david in uh, second Samuel, you mentioned, uh, Francisca, uh, in order to prompt David to convict himself in the context of you know Bathsheba uh, affairs and her unfortunate husband. But there is no mention of Bathsheba, Uriah, or the prophet, uh, not in the Quran. Um, instead, the Quran simply assert that David, upon assessing the dispute presented to him by the two brothers, he understand that God put him to the test and therefore he asked God for forgiveness and God accepted the, the, you know, the, the, the plea. So in the later Muslim tradition, you know, some Muslims face some difficulties explaining this, uh, you know, explaining the kind of transgression or sin for which David asked for forgiveness. Because if it is accepted, that you know that you know uh, you know David had affairs you know with with Bathsheba. Then how to explain this vis-a-vis the idea that prophet cannot do wrong? So the concept of infallibility of the prophet. You know how to explain this sort of you know um, uh, transgression that David, as a prophet, committed. You know uh, you know in his life. So it seemed like you know. The, the idea of infallibility of the Prophet shaped Muslim understanding of how to explain this episode of the Quran. Um, I remember as,
0: reading reading an account of a Muslim traveler to Jerusalem. I think he mm-hmm. was the Fatimid. Um, uh, the name will come to me. I think it's Nasiri Khasro who says mm-hmm. it. And he travels, um, I think, in the 11th century to Jerusalem. And he gets to the spot uh, around the Haram. Mm-hmm. Temple Mount slash Haram al-Sharif, where um, the Dome of the Rock and the Aqsa Mosque are. And uh, there's a gate there known at the time as the Gate of, of Repentance. I forget if it's Bab al or it might be associated to Bab al-Hitta, which okay. is connected to another chronic passage. But he sort of right dramatically says, and I fell down in prostration, repenting to God, I, the poor sinner who had the blessing of visiting this holy site, as David once fell down in prostration in this very spot, repenting to God. So at least in that account, David as penitent was was important. But um, uh, of course, as you mentioned, that is in some tension with the doctrine of David as uh, infallible prophet. Yeah. Okay,
1: so um, in Islam... You don't distinguish infallible and impeccable?
3: Well, you know, depending on what we mean by infallibility, because Muslims themselves do not agree what what, what this concept really mean, uh, does this mean that, you know, that prophet cannot do any kind of wrong or certain type of wrongdoing? Yeah. So, um, so if, if we look at you know the the evolution of Muslim understanding of this episode of the Quran concerning concerning David, we see that you know that their understanding of this verse is really shaped by how the concept of infallibility developed in the Islamic tradition. So, I, I did some you know little research on this, uh, looking at the early uh, Quranic exegesis, So, I I find you know um uh, most early muslim exegetes like muqatil bin Sulaiman, whose whose exegesis is is the earliest one that accept today he basically accept the idea that david did have affairs with 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 uh, bathsheba that there was no problem of that and it seemed like by his time this concept of of was still developing was not wasn't widely accepted but if you look at the, the later Muslim exegesis from the you know from the fourth century onward mo, mo, Muslim tried to reject this 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 biblical narrative altogether you know using all different kind of of hermeneutical uh, you know uh, endeavors including that the fact that the Quran understand mention this according to some mean that it didn't happen, <laughs> you know, because the Quran doesn't mean this at all. That's
1: an argument from silence. The <laughs> argument from silence is very weak.
3: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's
2: interesting that there isn't there isn't in the Jewish tradition an investment in the, in the idea of the infallibility of prophets or any other people. But there is a particular in- interest in defending David from the sin uh, famous statement in the Talmud that uh, anyone who says that David sinned uh, is, is himself a, a sinner. Uh, what and, about Nathan? I mean, well, uh, well, right. Well, I mean, one has to. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot of I mean, <laughs> it's kind of an exegetical puzzle. I mean, one has to kind of uh, assume a general practice of uh, husbands sort of conditionally divorcing their wives uh, uh, to, to, uh, uh, to 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 to. Right to, to be able to defend David, but uh, but the all the I guess the more interesting question is why exactly uh, the Talmudic passage is so interested in defending uh, David when there isn't a general uh, kind of uh, uh, there, there is a certain uh, kind of defense of uh, biblical forefathers uh, uh, among whom David would rank in the uh, in the Talmud, but there does seem to be a particular investment in finding David sinless in this affair. Granted. Well, part of the part of the question might be related to the other elements of David's
0: personality in the Bible and the Quran, where he is held up for uh, piety generally. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, he's uh, associated traditionally with the Psalms, although I think this might be a little complicated. Uh, some of the Psalms have little introductory statements, a Psalm of David, and sometimes even when he was fleeing or uh, sort of a, an occasion on which he sang the Psalm. Um in the Qur'an speaks as, as Munim you mentioned for us, uh, associates uh, David with the Psalms as well, Zubur, yep. in Arabic. Um, so, I mean, uh, maybe we could just touch on that briefly. I don't want to pass over entirely. I don't know if we want to start with the association and, in the Bible. Uh, maybe, Sufi, you could start us off with that. Um,
2: sure. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, so, so David is associated with, uh, with singing and with uh, the playing of a stringed instrument. In the uh, in the Bible itself, one of the accounts of how David comes to meet Saul, c- comes to encounter Saul, and there are a couple of different accounts. The story of David and Goliath is one, but uh, but another is of uh, David entering uh, Saul's employ as a uh, uh, as a a player uh, on a stringed instrument who can kind of soothe Saul's troubled spirit, uh, and so from there uh, there develops an association between David and Uh, And song uh, in the biblical text. Uh, And then, right. And then, uh, as you mentioned, Gabriel, there are Psalms with headers that link particular passages to particular incidents in the life of David. Um, but it is, uh, comp- um, and, and, and then there's a point in the Psalms, I believe at the end of Psalm 72, is it, uh, where, uh, which, which speaks of the end of the Psalms of David or here are the Psalms of David end, um, the son, so Psalms of David, the son of Jesse. Uh, but then of course there are another, uh, ooh, 150 minus 72 Psalms still left in the book. <laughs> it's a good um,
0: way to do it on the spot. Right,
1: thank you.
2: Yes. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, so, so, so the, the relationship between uh, David and the Psalms, I mean, there's also the book of Chronicles to figure here in terms of uh, David is instituting a system of Levitical singing um, in the temple, uh, so, but, but that is a, a major aspect of the, uh, of the uh, understanding of David, and then you come to uh, depictions of David in, uh, in Jewish and Christian art, where David becomes an Orpheus-like figure as, uh, who is, uh, who is uh, performing, again, on a stringed instrument.
0: The he also dances that moment.
2: All right.
1: Um, Sorry,
0: Francesca. Go when on.
1: I um, wrote my commentary on One Samuel, as you can see, it's a Brazos theological commentary on the Bible, and the editor kept telling us to read the Bible within the tradition, read your One Samuel within the tradition. So I keep looking, and there just is almost no patristic or medieval commentary on One Samuel. They're just not interested in this political David setting up his kingdom and so on. And for many of the scenes in 1 Samuel, the only way I could read it in the tradition was through psalm commentary. Because there's masses of... Like some of the scenes in David's life are supposed to be reflected in some of the psalms. And so the only way I could read it Theologically, within the tradition, was through going from the psalm, which was associated with this period in David's life, which is particularly the periods where he's fleeing from Saul, trying to kill him.
2: Right. Though the story also of Bathsheba also is a major one. This is major penitential psalm, Psalm 51, is yes. uh, supposed to have been recited according to the header uh, after Nathan the prophet comes to him in the aftermath of the sin. And so this this psalm in which the the singer reflects on his sinfulness, having been conceived in sinfulness, uh, that is situated or put in David's mouth after the sin against
3: Bathsheba.
1: And um, in the New Testament, Jesus constantly quotes the psalms. And I would say that was a stronger tie of Jesus to David than any of the political messiah stuff, because Jesus doesn't really want to be recognized as a Davidic messiah, but he does repeatedly quote the Psalms. So, you know, David put the harp into Jesus's hand, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. um, That's really the real connection between Jesus and David, I would say, was musical or somatic more than political. Um, Because Jesus just quotes the Psalms as he dies. You know, he's quoting Psalm 23. Um, And
0: Munim, you mentioned, before we go to the question of the Messiah and maybe Davidic connections to that, but um, Munim, you mentioned that uh, the psalms are in the Quran associated with David, but David's also explicitly said to praise God with the birds and the mountains. I always found that a fascinating passage there.
3: Yeah, the, the Quran doesn't mention whether David play any instrument, but it does, you know, allude to his ability to recite, you know, divine revelation in a very beautiful voice. So as as you know you know you know Jewish and Christian uh, tradition see David as as musician king who you know sang his psalm the image of David in the Quran is of a prophet who recited divine revelation in beautiful uh, voice so th- there are some some you know some uh views in the later islamic tradition that describe David as having ability to even attract not only human being but also bird and 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 mountain as you can see from the text of the Quran that you know that that god give him excellent or fadlan and you know the mountain and bird echo with him so um that's beautiful yeah yeah, yeah. yeah was, so there the, 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 the are report you know in the later muslim tradition saying that when david recites, his his song, the birth stopped in the air, to the extent that they died because of oh, hunger. So the <laughs> genies, the bird, the all animals used to stay near to David because of his beautiful voice. <laughs> yeah, I think
2: it's it's interesting to see. I, I think to some extent what you what, uh, what what one may be having in the Quran is a uh, is a conflation. I think of some of things that the uh, Bible ascribes to. David on the one hand and then to Solomon on the other. Certainly, uh, I guess the association of David with Hikmah, with with wisdom, uh, that's something that the that the that's Bible Solomon. predicates of yeah. Solomon. Yeah. And yeah. then also Solomon's ability, well, I mean, uh, at least as understood in tradition, uh, ability to communicate with animals. That's not necessarily the plain sense of the passage in its biblical context. Um, but uh, but in the Bible, right, there are two different models of kingship. I mean, David is uh the uh the founder of this dynasty that will then persist and he is the one who enters into this covenant with god uh, uh but as francesca mentioned he is to some extent anomalous and has this charismatic element and he is by definition uh like any initiator of a dynasty not himself dynastic uh doesn't achieve his position dynastically um whereas solomon right if if a kind of a chief role of a of a ju- of a king is judgment and providing justice then solomon is the paradigmatic king in that respect and so um uh, you, you have these kinds of ideals of kingship to a certain extent, maybe divided, distributed among Solomon and, and David, and then maybe not so much in the Quran. Interesting.
1: Yeah.
0: Interesting. So I it, hadn't maybe, realized that
1: wisdom hikmah. was what, um, what Munim was saying, Hikmah. Yeah, yeah. Hikmah, hikmah. Right. And,
0: yeah. in hikmah and Arabic. So mm-hmm. just to follow up on this, and maybe we, as we move to a conclusion now, um, the question of the covenant. And uh, just maybe as a as a final thought, we could um, discuss a bit the question of the Messiah, and I think that probably is material for a whole episode
2: uh,
0: <laughs> in the connections with David. But uh, the covenant is in Second Samuel seven, uh, or at least a passage. Um, uh, traditionally, seem to be a covenant, um, and uh, Svi, maybe we'll start with you. I mean, does the whole notion of a, of a Messiah sort of uh, flow from this passage,
2: and the notion that someone that God will raise up someone like David? Uh, well, well, uh, right. So, so it's not. Uh, I mean, in the biblical context, uh, so Second Samuel seven uh, establish uh, is this narrative in which God establishes a uh, this covenantal relationship specifically with David. Uh, and then um, the implication is that there will be future kings, or it's it's a it's a commitment to the continuation of the Davidic dynasty. Uh, it's not uh, there's no sort of distinctive privileging of some specific future figure. Uh, it's um, the, the way a kind of messianic expectation arises is as a result of the interruption of the davidic dynasty so messiah simply means the one who is anointed uh, and m- meaning right oil is placed on him by way of dedicating this individual to a particular ritual task in this case the task of kingship and so messiah or christ is simply the anointed successor to the davidic throne uh and so the way in which we come to focus our attention on a and a singular finger of a figure of a Messiah is simply because with a Babylonian exile, that Davidic succession is interrupted. And so then part of that horizon of expectation, looking toward the future is for the restoration of that Davidic monarchy uh, in the figure of a Davidic king, a Messiah. Uh, and so Second Samuel 7 could be understood as the foundation of that, but more generally it's the foundation of a Davidic dynasty. and the Messiah is the figure who will restore a Davidic kingship in Jerusalem.
0: And of course, this uh, language then about David becomes very important to the New Testament. I mean, Francesco, you were speaking about connections between Psalms and yes. Jesus' quotation of the Psalms, but the, yes. he is referred to um, as son of David yes. Um, yes. by the Gospel authors, yes. you know, or the characters that they describe their their conversations. Um, so. Uh, i don't know if um that is is just a way of saying messiah or if it's more complicated than that maybe
1: um i think uh, some people want him in the new testament some characters want him to be a son of david in the sense that he will be the awaited davidic messiah who will be a political messiah and in that sense Jesus is just not going to be a political messiah in any traditional sense. But the genealogies at the beginning of Matthew and Luke um, do trace him back to, to David and to Adam, Adam David, Jesus. Um, so the fact that he is descended from David is important to
0: the new testament authors but uh, I, I, sorry go ahead
1: he's going to do things differently this time mm. in the new
2: testament mm-hmm.
0: um, there, there's this uh this uh question put into the mouth of the people who see jesus accomplish a miracle in matthew 12 all the people are amazed and said can this be the son of david and um it, yeah, it seems to be a very sort of fruitful illusion uh, or way of alluding to um, the, this messianic expectation. I mean, maybe just as a final thought, in Second Samuel 7, there is a notion of the everlasting nature of the Davidic reign, right? It's not just, right. I will establish some kings after you, but mm. that, you know, that it will be everlasting. Mm. And um, so, I mean, David, David's a really big deal, <laughs>
2: Uh, yes yes right I mean how, how much of that is yeah the uh right to, to what extent is it the the figure of David uh, himself who uh, kind of sets a, uh, becomes a as it were kind of a model for that future king but yes it's it's the eternal nature of that uh, of that covenant that become that that makes it so important that secures this idea of a messiah as part of a as a kind of a constituent aspect of that end time. And then, of course, within the Jewish tradition, that uh, kind of remains um, in the, uh, that kind of core political sense of a Messiah as king, um, hence ruling over a territory, political independence, uh, that, um, that remains. Uh, but then, right, as, as, as Francesca mentioned, of course, in the context of Jesus, th- that political dimension doesn't uh, go away either. The whole notion of a kingdom of God uh, right, a coming kingdom of God is ultimately rooted in the idea of Jesus as Messiah, hence ushering in a kingship, a kingdom. Um, but uh, but it, it becomes uh, interpreted uh, to, to have a, a much much wider scope as well, of course. Thank you.
0: Um,
2: Do you know
1: what salat means? Salah is that word, you know, which comes in between the biblical verses. Uh, like, uh, uh, oh, Lord, you are the greatest on earth and above the earth, Salah. Oh, Lord, you made the cloud, Salah. And they can't translate Salah because it's just a word by itself. Uh, so uh, my professors told us that Salah is what David said when he broke a heartstring. string. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you, uh, friends. Um, a pleasure, yeah, having this conversation with you and all those listening. Thank you for joining us, and be sure to be with us for the next episode of Minding Scripture, where divine word and human reason.